Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sir, I'm detecting a subspace message. I'll put it on speakers. Subspace, dare to wander. Last week, we actually had to uh, cut out before we finished our conversation about Robert Blake and his performance in uh, Lost Highway and, oh, yeah. and what he had to say about working with David Lynch in that Cinefantastique article. Oh, yeah. Blake talked about how Lynch really seemed to want to kind of embrace what wanted to come forward from Blake's own imagination. Right. Uh, thrust him back into what it was like to be a child actor uh, w- working with such giants as, as Spencer Tracy and, and Humphrey Bogart. Right. And back in the day where, uh, you know, child labor laws and all that stuff in the film studio, uh, we know from various <laughs> biographies of child stars turned adult weren't that pleasant. Okay, that's not the direction we were going in, okay, though. Great. That was not the point of what he learned oh, uh, working from them. Okay. Um, w- way to uh, take the uh, lemonade and, and, and squeeze it right back into lemons. <laughs> that's my specialty. What he was talking about uh, that we didn't get a chance to continue to discuss on, on the show last week was how he learned from people like Tracy and Bogart and, and, and Gable uh, a tremendous amount of economy and simplicity. Right. Uh, when he did Treasure the Sierra Madre and he watched Bogart work, even though Bogart had scenes where he absolutely went insane, literally, right, in the film, yeah, you never saw him uh, doing what uh, we might call chewing up the scenery. Right. Uh, as Robert Blake says, he wasn't banging off of walls and doing all this stuff. He was always very clean and very specific. Um, and and Robert Blake said, I like those kind of actors. I think Anthony Hopkins has become that. The more he works, the less he does. By the time he did Hannibal Lecter, he was doing very little. He just looked very clean, very economical. He wasn't all over the place. He wasn't climbing the walls, wandering around. He didn't use his arms or hands. He didn't use any outrageous makeup. He was just clean, tidy, and brilliant. Right? Don't Don't give it to the audience. Leave it to the audience, which, right. which is what I was doing with the mystery man. Less is more until finally I was doing nothing except putting the words out. And uh, so I wanted to revisit this for three real reasons. One is, I guess, as a director, helping an actor get to a place where they realize that doing nothing is to do everything. Yes, and this requires faith. On the actor's part, it is so much about theater is uh, presenting yourself outward, uh, projecting towards the uh, the balcony, the last seat of the balcony. Whereas in camera, uh, when you're on uh, camera, you're inviting that camera in as opposed to projecting out. You let that camera come deep inside your psyche and whatever you're thinking will translate through your eyes and your face into camera with the economy that you don't have to do like you do in theater. 
I also think, uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins, great theater actor turned mm-hmm. screen actor, uh, the irony of him becoming this kind of actor that he described that I totally recognize as Robert Blake's describing it. <laughs> this is why Anthony Hopkins was a star by the time of Silence of the Lambs, why that makes him a star. And the irony is it's a transition from being the kind of actor who worked with David Lynch on Dune and tried to get him fired because he didn't think David Lynch understood how to work with actors to just a handful of later years later becoming the perfect kind of David Lynch actor. <laughs> That's irony. But I, I also think the way, I mean, it took Robert Blake uh, in that article uh, a while to come around. Absolutely. Well. Absolutely. So. That's the thing. It, it, as you have increasingly been saying of late, it's context. Yeah. It, it's right. not about right or wrong. It's about where you are on the wheels of your own personal artistic progress and who you can come into uh, you know, contact with and collaborate with that can help you step out of what you had accepted as, even unconsciously, a comfort zone. Right. Growing and weeding that garden to open that channel. And that's why I've always been kind of touched. One of the things I've really liked about Lynch is how when he did work with older veteran actors, like again on Elephant Man, I think I said Anthony Hopkins in Dune. Anthony Hopkins was Elephant Man, of course. Right. And, uh, but also in that you have such great legends of the stage and screen as John Gielgud, who absolutely adored working with Lynch. Because they were further along in that process, right? Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's almost like Lynch works best with lesser experienced actors who haven't committed to a particular process yet and are therefore more open to experimentation and exploration. Or actors who are really far along in their journey can get back to that idea of, oh, yes, this is getting back to the child, like letting go. This is getting back to the faith of doing nothing right? and being. Um, and that it's the actors who are in the middle on that process where it helps them, where they think it behooves them to identify with their own successes and the way they achieve those successes, that it can be a conflict. Yes. There's also a level of security that comes with doing a multitude of performances and on-camera performances. Uh, screen appearances that allows you to uh, uh, dissipate all that uh, self-doubt and self-criticism that allows you then to just listen uh, to your fellow actor, listen to your director, and just have that manifest however it will with the artist within, right? Uh, That so much requires so much faith as a performer that you only get through years of experience. We did a special theme show a while back where we compared and contrasted uh, the careers of uh, actor Tom Cruise to filmmaker Jim Jarmusch because they covered roughly the same amount of time and and represented different movements within the art form of film. And we had, we had talked about perhaps pairing uh, Marlon Brando with a, a, a filmmaker that covered the same kind of ground and doing something similar in terms of analysis on a show. But after listening to last week's show and us talking again about Jack Lemmon, 
I wondered if a better uh, theme show might not be us comparing and contrasting the careers and acting styles and what they represented, Brando and Jack Lemmon. Wow! Then we'll just put that on the bulletin board. That'll end the production meeting on the air. Let's get started with this week's show. <laughs> meeting adjourned. And now, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. Once again, to your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. This is Season 3, Episode 32. I am Phil Lairness, coming at you from Los Feliz, a neighborhood in Los Angeles. And I'm coming at you after two weeks of COVID quarantine. And joining us via the magic of broadcasting and podcasting from the environs of Motown, Birmingham, Michigan, to be precise. It's the Motor City-adjacent madman. It's TV's Dean Hagland. How's your week been, Dean? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> the atmosphere is pleasant. Chores are getting done, grass is cut, the leaves are beginning to turn. It's spectacular. September's here. You haven't left home in all that time, have you? You haven't even walked outside. <laughs> I haven't even looked out the that window. That was the description of someone who might imagine what the outdoors could be like. I how's, had, the, how's the COVID feeling these days? Uh, good. I felt when we talked last week that I was really out of the woods. And uh, then the next day, uh, I might not be out of the woods, but let's test anyway. And still positive with a heavy viral load. So back to the drawing board. But uh, I am doing uh, spectacular now. I'll test again uh, in the morning. I think we did a great show last week. I enjoyed listening back to it. I, I particularly enjoyed, in the moment, the conversation about uh, transition, getting to go deeper into a conversation we had started weeks earlier, thanks to our email from uh, our lawyer, loyal listener and friend, Agent Summer. Right. And no sooner do we do that uh, conversation about living in a time of transition and uh, needing to... Uh, you know, become better navigators of consciousness uh, as we as we navigate the ever shifting currents of 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 life, the universe, and everything. Then uh, the UK shows us what it's all about. <laughs> I mean, a new prime minister, a new government, and then two days later, the the monarch that uh, invites that prime minister to form a government, uh, shuffling off the mortal coil after 70 years as a fixture in global life and consciousness. Yeah, right? Like trained from a small child to do the job she did for 70 years. Now, I bottled up your well-honed instinct to be the skunk at the party when we were discussing uh, child actors in Hollywood in the cold open. Right. Uh, And I uh, invite you to uh, let us little skunkishness out so that we can get it out of the way. Um, Initial thoughts to not only the Queen's passing or death, as I like to say, but also the reactions and responses to that death. Yeah, well, you know, there's always going to be 
people upset about colonialism. Uh, and there's also going to be people real- who love it, who love it, who are big, big fans, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> Not of colonialism. No, I think there are people who are big fans. There's people who still think white nationalism is a really good idea. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm not here to arguing for or against it. I'm just saying that there's a duplicit duality on all things uh, global. So uh, as we embrace duality uh, and realize that uh, we don't live in a homogenous society, we also celebrate uh, the remarkable achievement of a person who could stay on the throne for 70 years and did it in a time from World War II, holy smokes, that crazy time, to uh, everything else, to Brexit, to, like you're saying. Well, this is Dean Haglund at his best, if I might say. This being able to not only uh, accept, but in some ways celebrate the duality. And right. this, is, this is what you have to do on stage. And this is what you have to do <laughs> when you've conducted interviews. You have to be able to... Here's the phrase that came up in Truth Is Out There that I love holding the tension of the opposites. Ah, right. Why would one want to do that? Well, one would want to do that in any creative endeavor where those precious moments where anything is possible and that decision and movement forward is going to destroy some possibilities while continuing to create other possibilities. But there's that moment of not knowing, and it could be a moment that's a split second, or it's a moment that might last a whole show where you are given an idea, an idea comes forward, and you don't know what to do with it, but you hold it. Even though you know this might conflict and contradict and and might destroy things that we've already set up, but it also might still have its place. Right. And so you have to hold the tension of the opposites. I love that. And it's quantum physics. It's the Schrodinger's cat. Uh, until you observe the particle, the particle is in two states. But in public life, that duality is visible and therefore is designed or defined by the observer. This person, this person was a proponent of colonialism. This person served all her peoples. They're different perspectives that define the same person. Well, but aren't we a myriad of different uh, personas? Absolutely. Aren't we, though, wired to try to define what we're looking at and deny that duality? That's why I'm saying that this willingness to hold a range of perspectives, that kind of quantum consciousness that I think is demanded as we move forward into this time we're calling a time of transition that might last forever. We don't know. Um, that's why it's a, a place of not knowing that we find ourselves. That the, the, the willingness to hold the tension of the opposites and, and to do so lovingly, to be grateful for the dualities, to love the dualities— you and I use the example of we, we can't uh, welcome diversity by seeking to exclude those who exclude others. You, you have to, uh, in order to have diversity, you have to welcome the voice that seeks exclusivity. Right. That's the only, that's the path. That's what makes it so difficult. So if you want to be loving, 
you also have to love within yourself the voice of hatred. Right? The darkness. Otherwise, it consumes you. You say that all the time. You, are, you, you face your shadow or the shadow overtakes you. And, and so that's why I thought it was fascinating this week, and I wanted to hit you with that question, because here in The Queen, I think we have this fantastic dreamlike symbol that allows us to unpack so many of these topics we've been exploring over the last few weeks. Interesting. Uh, I am a student of history. I understand uh, all the perspectives. I can't know them viscerally, what it feels like to hold all those perspectives. But I can appreciate them and understand them. My experiences personally are, uh, wouldn't it be lovely if there was a place where people who love the queen could go and express their love of the queen, people for whom it derives great joy and meaning to still give the Pledge of Allegiance at a time when other people might be turned off by such a patriotic act. Um, Wouldn't it be nice that if that same place was a place where every week we could express gratitude to the Gabrielino Tongva people who were the original stewards of the land that that place was based on? Well, that place exists, and I get to go to it every week. It's called The Breakfast Club. Right. Where whatever you want to express love and admiration and respect for, you are welcome to do so. And it in no way is ever taken as a slight against someone else. It's good for you for loving something. Good for you for feeling gratitude for something. And as long as that love and that gratitude is a joyful noise unto the Creator, then it all belongs under the same roof. Right. But that also requires... uh to live in a void, as a word, an unknown. An, un- an unknown because what you have to let go of, as you point out, you have to let go of ego. Mm-hmm. You have to let go of that part of you that identifies with someone who believes that the Pledge of Allegiance is a crass, reactionary, you know, political, uh, what would you call it, um, signaling. Signaling, right? Or yes. Your belief systems that you identify with, well, that identification is always tied in with ego. And the ego is always going to limit your ability to hold all the possibilities to be all right with duality long enough to let you break bread and enjoy the company of someone that you might have serious disagreements with. And I read this all the time on people who can't go to their family anymore because it's a diversity or they're all, you know, uh, right wing idiots or however they express it, that uh, they no longer can sit with family. Whereas that's sort of the idea of family is that that you all have differing opinions. You all bring in a large perspective when you discuss amongst the turkey dinner or whatever that. that it is not uh, your them against us, but these are a variety of opinions coming from your own kid. At the you very know. least, right, we all would like to be loved in, in spite of our follies <laughs> right? or our flaws. 
deeper down, the scarier parts are where we actually would like to be loved because of them. Oh, interesting. Not in spite of, but because of. And the, but- and the most interesting thing is you go through that terrifying, muddy work. And it's, and it's terrifying because those same flaws and follies are what lead ourselves to believe that we are fundamentally unlovable. Hmm. And so the moment somebody starts to love them before it, it becomes really terrifying because we do hold identifications with what makes us lovable and what makes us not lovable. Right. But if the things we think make us unlovable, we are loved for, ooh, that can be transformative. And anyway, the, 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 where I really want to get with this and something you and I have witnessed before that happens is when people realize that you appreciate them and enjoy them and have affection for them, the degree to which they hold firm to beliefs loosens up. Yeah, right? They want to receive what you're offering, which is pure affection and admiration. And curiosity. Why do you think the way you do? Well, how did you get to this opinion? I am fascinated. Not that I'm judging you, not that I'm going to stop at the end of it going, aha, here's the fault in in your assumptions or any of that. It's just like, oh, that's incredibly... Uh, illuminating about both of us, uh, frankly. And I think that was the whole documentary The Truth Is Out There, was not only uh, illuminating about the people we interviewed, but illuminating to ourselves of what we learned in terms of embracing the duality. So I'm fascinated by this happening now collectively as part of a dream for all of us, this queen that we have all uh, had in in public life as this figure for 70 years because in no small part she is a figure was a figure of tr- tradition through change and stability through transition right that's what that was a symbol of and now we're letting go of the symbol of 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 tradition and stability which again to me only more announces that this is literally a time of transition of transition and improvisational flexibility oh yeah yeah that has to come from an emotional intelligence those are words that you use a lot boy i found you know whatever anybody's feelings and the history of and the legacy of and the baggage of prince charles now king charles the third Right. I can't but say as a director, as someone who observes performance for a living, that his initial address to the nation was a a startling display of emotional intelligence. Right. Well, he knew it was coming. So how often people should have known what was coming and still couldn't respond to it through a startling lack of emotional intelligence right because what you can't prepare yourself for is the feelings that are going to come forward no actor can prepare themselves for the feelings that are going to come forward in the moment it's good this is why i said last week we can never control what we're feeling all we can choose is how to feel about what we're feeling and that requires emotional intelligence and there you see Charles, King Charles III 
doing that very thing. Yeah. He's what's coming forward during his speech talking about his dear mama was genuine. He knew that was going to come up as he said those words. He wasn't going to try stifle it. He was going to let that roll through uh, the text prepared for him. Uh, just and even the very simple phrase uh, that was issued towards uh, his estranged son and his estranged son uh, daughter-in-law, you know, left at worst people saying, "Well, wait, what exactly did he mean by that?" But no one could say, "Oh, this is why he said it. Oh, this is what he meant by it." It, at worst, left people asking and wondering. And when we ask questions and wonder, we are now open to more possibilities. It could not be defined in a way to prove a point that we want to make, which, again, is a startling display of emotional intelligence on his part. I agree. I mean, he is in his 70s, and one would hope that a lifetime— of the service that he had done up till now as Prince of Wales would gather the wherewithal to have that emotional intelligence at this moment. You mean you are saying that you think the way life ought to work is that the older people get, the more emotional intelligence they have on display. One would hope. America never got that memo, Dean. (laughs) You in the Commonwealth were issued that memo, apparently. Oh, I see. Multiphasic transmissions overlapping. It's almost a gibberish. Subspace. Dare to wonder. I I had a couple of uh, thoughts, though, about 70 years. How things don't necessarily change so much as they evolve. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. When you put your arms around me, I get a fever that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. Here's a woman who becomes queen only because the rightful king abdicates because he wants to marry a divorcee. In the morning, fever all through the night. Right, Miss the- Wallace Simpson. Divorce was uh, not okay. So he had to abdicate to follow his heart. Right. The same queen, she dies, and the man who becomes king is in fact a divorcee 70 years later. Hilarious. See how we have evolved as a society? And yet at the same time, there is an uncle to a future monarch who has abdicated, left the royal family to start a life in America. So there will still be a monarch with an American uncle who is no longer part of the royal family. Fascinating. So you're saying patterns repeat itself. We are living patterns, as you always say. We, we can't change patterns. All is made of energetic patterns, and they can't be changed. What we can change is our relationship to them. Interesting. And in so doing, we might just change how everything feels. And if we change how everything feels... Well, then all possibilities might be new again. Hooray! But, so, but you can only change your relationship to the patterns, I believe, fundamentally, by loving the patterns for exactly what they are. How about this for a little uh, evolution, as it were? Back when uh, King, King George was, uh, died, wasn't that her father? Yeah, 
yeah, yeah. Um, uh, when he died, uh, boy, that was that was unexpected, and that was deemed tragically, especially uh, with the way that he was seen to really step up to the role of king that was thrust upon him when his older brother abdicated and during the darkest hours of the war. Right. I love the movie King's Speech, by the way. Yes. uh, Where they sort of uh, demonstrate that through his uh, vocal teacher and friend. Yes. And and how uh, our greatest weakness can ultimately become our our greatest strength. His inability to speak, to literally speak, because of a stutter, becomes his most important superpower when he's able to overcome it. Right. Uh, anyway, when he died, uh, the, the, the grief was, by all accounts, palpable. Uh, shops closed. Uh, theaters went dark. All sporting events were put on pause, except for the Football Association, for the FA, for the top level of soccer, as we call it in this country. Their games continued, and they simply <laughs> observed a minute of silence before each game. <laughs> Right. They spectacularly got it wrong, let's say. So flash forward 70 years. This queen dies. This isn't a tragedy. This is a celebration. Mm -hmm. Diana's death was a tragedy. Right. You know, this was a a natural extension of being alive. You die. You die. No one gets out alive. And it's it's opened the door to celebration. Uh, No shops are closed. No businesses are closed. Uh, flags are at half mast. Uh, theaters at seven p.m. Uh, for, for the whole period of mourning will dim their lights for two minutes in honor and to promote meditation and in, in gratitude towards the monarch. Sporting events continuing to go with each event beginning with lovely tributes to the queen across the board, except of course for the FA, the top level of what we call soccer. They've canceled all games until further notice in honor of the Queen. <laughs> well, because they, you know, I'm sure the criticism... 70 years long they, later, they somehow managed to get it wrong again. <laughs> or do, well, By they, going in an entirely different direction. Look, so they get it every 70 years, they get the bookends, right? <laughs> we go too far this way, too far that way. So, you know... When we get uh, William the Third, King William the Third, uh, perhaps they'll get it correctly. Exactly. The pendulum swings, and and hopefully at some point we'll be Johnny on the spot to witness when the pendulum swings right through the sweet spot. <laughs> I had to ask uh, the question, uh, Dean. Honestly, did I kill her? What? I. What did you do? The night before she died, I finally caught up with Pablo Lorraine's film from last year, Spencer which got all sorts of uh, award uh, nominations for lead actress Kristen Stewart playing Princess Diana. Oh. Uh, over the weekend, the Christmas weekend, where she decides to divorce, uh, you know, Prince Charles. Right. And uh, th- this was a movie that, uh, like I said, it got a lot of award consideration, got a lot of great reviews, made the Metacritic consensus for best of the, the year last year. Uh and, uh, you know, it was all about taking the side of, of Diana. And, and uh, I, I, I felt like, <gasps> when I heard the news, oh, my goodness, the queen like, knew 
And uh, that you were watching Spencer, that you would take it aside. When you get to a certain age, anything that takes the wind out of your sails can be too much. And her feeling, even for a minute, that I had pulled away of my loving devotion to the crown um, had to be a blow to her. Well, I'm going to suggest that perhaps it was buffered by others who didn't watch Spencer, like myself. There's an equilibrium. You know as well as I do, though, Dean. It's not how many people love what we do. With sometimes those voices of criticism, it doesn't matter if they are greatly outnumbered. They're the ones that stick with us. And why do they stick with us, Dean? Because they agree with some voice we have in ourselves. Oh, my God. You murdered the guy. How could you? <laughs> but what I don't particularly care for are um, movies about royalty. <laughs> no, what I don't particularly care for are movies that assume that I find these people interesting. Oh, interesting. So King's Speech wasn't for you. Because- no, it was for me. I found this to be very interesting. It's not that they made these people interesting, that these people were uninteresting in real life. I don't mean that. But they conveyed what was interesting about them. They conveyed what was universal about them. Ah, we yeah. were rooting. I mean, King's Speech is royalty's version of Rocky. Almost. Almost, <laughs> Kind yeah. of. I mean, it, it has that kind of rooting interest for you. Um, there is an assumption, is there not, on the part of, of, of many storytellers who delve into royal realms that what makes them interesting in and of themselves is that they're royal? And I know that they're, 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 uh, this belief is, is backed up by a huge amount of people around the world that follow the royal family like a soap opera. So, right. yeah, they are on board. But I still think you are abdicating your power and your responsibility as a storyteller if you don't drill down into what is actually interesting about this person. I, I think the filmmakers, to a degree, think we're on Diana's side and that we found her fascinating. I feel free to send angry letters to Dean. <laughs> I never found Diana remotely interesting or appealing in any way. Right. Um, I, I don't have negative feelings towards her at all. No. I, I'm just not, I'm not compelled. I'm not interested. I, I a, a young girl thrust into the center stage of the world's camera who then uh, buckles down, does great charity work. A la, right. You know. Absolutely. There is a way to tell anybody's story that makes anybody fascinating and lovable, or hateful, or disgusting. There's there's a way to tell anybody's story that way, because all human beings have fascinating stories. But it isn't a story in and of itself that that makes good storytelling. It's how you tell that story. Uh And this assumption that we can drop in at this critical juncture, and you'll be fascinated uh, by it, I think is is um, folly, and and which I think is borne out by how at a time when movies about the Queen can be huge box office, TV shows about the Crown called The Crown can be huge ratings getter. That this movie uh, about a beloved figure, um, Diana, uh, was not uh, an overwhelming success. Now, of course, there was COVID. There are m- many other things aside. Um, so I'm not calling it a, a, a failure. 
Um, but but I do think that that assumption does uh, no uh, service to the subject matter, and it's a disservice to the the storytellers themselves. But uh, uh, wow, Kristen Stewart. Uh, before letting this go, this this young woman who, in the wake of of Twilight, which opened every door imaginable to her, right, and uh, you know just some of these titles like playing Joan Jett in The Runaways and Clouds of Sills Mario, which you know is one of my favorite films of the last decade, and and Personal Shopper, which she did for the same director, uh, Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women, uh, and now even her work in this. I mean, what a body of work this young lady has already assembled for herself, right. Yeah, and hard hard to do uh, when scripts are coming at you. I'm sure she has a multitude of voices from managers and agents telling her, oh, you have to do this or you should do that or if you want to build your career, do X. And she is listening to an artistic impulse, whether, you know, succeeding, whether box office is the focus or not. There is a, a, a quest that you can follow in her work. Uh we talked about uh, this film, The Souvenir Part Two, uh, from Joanna Hogg, uh, about the uh, autobiographical story uh, about uh, Joanna Hogg when she was a young film student. And uh, I told you how Souvenir Part Two I loved so much because it starts out as being kind of the making of the first movie, and then it turns out you're watching the making of the movie you're watching right then. (laughs) And uh, not only did these two films make the Metacritic consensus, but I found out that both Part One and Part Two topped the sight and sound polls for Best Films of the Year the year they came out. And uh, so I've decided I'm Team Joanna Hawk. She's always been super interesting, but after these, I can't wait to see where she goes next. No sooner do we talk about this than her new film debuts at Venice, Ooh. and it's a genre film, Ooh. Uh, and it's a ghost story and a mystery. I think it's called The Eternal Daughter. I can't, I can't believe I didn't write down what the title of it was, but the synopsis just grabbed me so much. Uh, a middle-aged daughter and her elderly mother have to confront long-buried secrets when they return to their former family home, a once grand manor that has now become a nearly vacant hotel brimming with mystery. Wow. The middle-aged uh, daughter is named Julie, and she's a filmmaker, which means that it's the character from the movies The Souvenir grown up to middle age. Oh, and that, of course, is the director herself, uh, played by Tilda Swinton, who played that character's mother in the Souvenir movies. Look at that. Now, wait. The elderly mother of that middle-aged filmmaker also being played by Tilda Swinton. Oh, my gosh. She's playing her own mom and daughter. So she's playing the same character that she played in The Souvenir as an old lady, and she's playing her daughter from The Souvenir as a middle-aged lady in this movie, in this mystery, in this ghost story. So it's a genre film, and yet it's also still utterly autobiographical. Wow. And it is called The Eternal Daughter. I like this. I am now going to watch all three. Something else that got a great amount of acclaim during the uh, pandemic that I've started to avail myself of is the Small Axe series on Prime, a series of feature-length films from Steve McQueen, 
the 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 great director of of hunger and shame and right. uh, twelve years a slave, and th- they were fascinating because of the way all the dividing lines were getting sort of wiped away during pandemic. Here is a series, Small Acts, which received Emmy love for best in television, but uh, the individual episodes of which were uh, ending up at the top of film critics top 10 list for best movies of the year. Wow. And uh, I saw the first two of five. The first one's Mangrove, which was really high on every film critic's list. All the films are set in uh, a certain London neighborhood that was home to a great deal of immigration uh, from the West Indies. Uh, From years, uh, late 60s through, let's call it mid-80s. And Steve McQueen was motivated to tell these stories because they were the stories of his elders. He realized that all these people were getting to the age that they were going to be dying soon. And they would die without ever having seen their lives and their life experiences depicted on screen. And he thought that's something that everyone should have the opportunity to witness, is seeing their life experiences um, validated in an artistic form. And if he didn't do it, who was going to do it? Cool. And, and so it's a wide range of topics. Even though I've only seen two, I know what all the different slices of life are that are depicted in these other ones. So Mangrove, it focuses on the Mangrove Nine, uh, famous for being the first trial ever in the history of the United Kingdom where it was established that there was racial hostility uh, towards people of color on the part of British institutions, including the police. Oh. And uh, the action focuses first on a restaurant, the Mangrove, which becomes a public gathering place at a time of social upheaval. Right. So it's a home to Black Panthers. And somehow, having Letitia Wright, the, the wonderful young actress who stars in the movie Black Panther for Marvel, playing, uh, you know, the, the, the prince's sister. Uh, having her, the star of Black Panther, play a Black Panther is somehow both a delightful winking nod and not distracting. <laughs> and the only way I can say this is because Steve McQueen is so adept at what it seems fewer and fewer filmmakers are, which is on a modest budget, being able to create, through the details of filmmaking, a sense that we are really experiencing what it felt like to be there. Oh, you're always uh, armchair directing. You're always <laughs> dissecting shot for shot. You uh, doing exactly what we all do when you're looking at a movie. You are uh, second guessing where it's going to go, all of that kind of stuff. Um, increasingly, though, I like to think that I'm being open to uh, more of a question of what could they have done differently to get this right as, wait, what are the strengths on display here and how might they find better expression somewhere else? Anyway, the second uh, story in this series couldn't be more different. It's set almost entirely at one house party, one night. It's called Lover's Rock. It's 70 or 67 minutes long. Um, There's maybe 25 minutes of what we would call story, 30 minutes of story, and 30 minutes of exploring character through movement and music. Wow. Which, 
if you know Steve McQueen's background, started as a visual performance artist. He was like a filmmaker projecting minimalistic black and white images, moving images on gallery walls and stuff. So his his ability to sit in that minimalism is well-earned. And what I love about it is, wait, how can you tell a story about people falling in love in 67 minutes? Well, uh, people tell that story every day on this planet. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of, they say now, scientifically, you kind of know within four minutes. This conversation about taking uh, what people are really good at and seeing where it could be applied, I um, I watched a few what I'm going to call comic book movies this okay. week. The first was Thor Love and Thunder by oh, okay. the great Taika Waititi. Uh, this film seemed to get dismissed by a great deal of people because of how silly it was. Which, to me, makes it the most prescient and valuable of all the Marvel movies. Oh. Because, uh, gosh darn it, superhero movies are just nothing but silly to the nth degree. (laughs) But they also take themselves so seriously. Exactly. Which just makes them sillier. Right. Right. That you have the, the weight of the universe... On the shoulders of one superhero. So I think the duality of having to hold your love of it while at the same time you're laughing at the thing you love is beyond a lot of comic book movie fans. And that's why the reaction. Interesting. Um, But as opposed to a Morbius uh, which I watched from director Daniel Espinosa, starring uh, Jared Leto as, as as Morbius. Thor Love and Thunder, even though a lot of people might not have liked it, you can't deny that there is a point of view that underscores why Taika Waititi, who does not need to, wanted to come back and make another Thor movie. That silliness that's on display through every element of it allows him to get to a place of love and genuine heart, and it gives a meaning for why... He wants to tell this story. Morbius, there is literally nothing on display at all about why anyone would make this, (laughs) why they would want to make this from a directing standpoint, an acting standpoint, a corporate standpoint, except for that old bugaboo, they made it because they could. Well, isn't it a necessary piece of the puzzle in the quote-unquote universe that without Morbius, some future amalgams won't come together? Yeah, it's something that they needed to make something else that they want to build. Right. So this is the problem with product locomotives. Not every boxcar is going to be holding a ton of gold. And what, you know, who... Who gets to ride in that uh, compartment? Look, direct Morbius, and you get uh, part three of section two of uh, year 2091, Marvel Universe film XYZ, right? Yeah, and I think that this is the right analysis, um, you know, this building blocks into some superstructure, uh, but the metaphor that they attach themselves to uh, is flawed to begin with. <laughs> I think, getting back to our truth is out there, the metaphor of Lee at his library is one that more people should avail themselves of. 
where in the religion section of his library, there's a huge painting over the backs of all the books, the spines of all the books in the religion section. Uh, And if you remove any one of the books, right, the picture becomes incomplete. But when you look at the spine of that individual book, you say, oh, but this book has its own unique design and unique beauty. No one ever says that about building blocks. (laughs) That's true. And if the building block is faulty, the structure might collapse in on itself. Well, this now comes down to engineering, right? It comes down to beauty. The flaws can be beautiful, and it can put your architectural creation on a whole new path. But man, you have to be able to embrace what wants to come forward. You have to be okay in the place of not knowing. You know, you have to do all that artsy stuff. I know. And don't the uh, lawyers... And, and the MBAs. MBA fellas hate that stuff. They got to pay for them Porsches and then second houses in Malibu. You're not going to do it because you got some artsy fella coming in with a point of view about having Thor having a sense of humor. Are you insane? I am uh, going to call this comic book movie. The third comic book movie I watched was uh, Boz Lerman's Elvis. <laughs> It it tells the story of how young Elvis was in love with the comics of of um, Captain Marvel Junior Shazam, uh-huh. and this reality on the part of Colonel Tom Parker uh, going all the way back that he had a superpower that he did become a superhero at times, and so it tells it almost as a superhero story. And what dawned on me as I'm going, how do I feel about all the historical inaccuracies? How do I feel about um, this ridiculous, terrible accent that they're making Tom Hanks do for effect when the real-life Tom Parker was such a more interesting, complicated figure? There's not a lot of room for that in a comic book. How do I feel about these things? How do I feel about how Austin Butler is doing a really good job playing Elvis until he has to play him as a grown man and then we're really at a loss, and I can tell the filmmakers know we're at a loss because they don't know when to go to actual Elvis footage versus footage of their lead actor. You know, as I'm trying to wrestle with these things, it all kind of dawns on me, wait, if I watch this as a comic book, not only does this become a much more enjoyable experience, but it suddenly puts Boz Lerman's whole filmography into perspective. He's always been making comic book movies. Absolutely. I mean, you think about... Uh Moulin Rouge as a breakthrough, the opening frames of that is a red curtain being pulled back almost on a two-dimensional space. Exactly how you open a comic book. That cover page is turned over and you're into a world of two-dimensional pen and color strokes, right? I mean, it's uh, the illusion of 3D and you are taken in, but ultimately it's two-dimensional and and the uh, and the emotional ranges are broad without being deep, right? Two so, two dimensional emotional ranges. Yeah, uh, I've gotten into arguments in the past with uh, people who love Boz Lerman because films should be visual, and he's such a wonderful visual filmmaker. And I find him to be the least visual filmmaker out there. And it gets back to this kind of debate, which is. Uh, the visual art of comics and graphics versus the semiotics of human movement. 
which I believe need to be at the heart of cinematic visuals. Not only the human movement on screen of the body and of the of the, of the heart and the psyche, but also the human movement of those humans behind the camera moving that camera. Yeah, with the cameras, so that you have a, a almost a choreographic dance. Uh, you love so much that three-dimensional film of Pina Bosch and her choreography, uh, directed by your favorite director. Well, Vim Vendors, yes. Vendors, and you're yeah. absolutely right, because, I, I mean, here Moulin Rouge, a movie ostensibly about a place where people go to dance, and I never get to see any dance. I only get to see Boz Lerman dancing with his post-production effects house. Right, because, and next time somebody says he's uh, visual, say, he's not, he's graphic. He's graphically uh, brilliant in terms of graphics, but in terms of visual, not quite the way we know what film can be in terms of movement and the human body and camera movement and mise-en-scene, as it were. So, as I say, as I get older uh, and have a more holistic view of all this, I find myself asking, again, what's right about this? And where might this wonderful skill set that he has, instead of just saying, oh, he's bad, he sucks, I don't like his stuff, and I'm going to fight you if you do, where might I find what he does more exciting? Just for me. Wouldn't that be a comic book movie? Yes, a Marvel movie. Why is Boz Lerman not making Marvel movies? This is what I've been saying. He's already making Marvel movies. And if I want an inaccurate, a radically inaccurate, full of lies because they're fun, biopic about Elvis, then please let Quentin Tarantino direct that one. (laughs) Because that'll be a movie. That would be a movie. That's a great one. Um, one. One storytelling point, though, that uh, they did, um, having Colonel Tom Parker tell the story um, yeah. is really a great way to approach the biopic. Having the POV be from a sidekick. Right. The manager or the, yes. How about a Batman movie told by Robin? Oh, I don't know. How about Sherlock Holmes novels? told from the point of view of Watson. Oh, they were. That's why they worked. Yeah, right? So what would be the perfect comic book movie that Baz Luhrmann should pick up? Surely there's there's one. I mean, I'm thinking Silver Surfer off the top. Belated spoiler alert. Subspace. Dare to wonder. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.